Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. I'm happy to have you listening to celebrate our 151st podcast. This is the beginning of the sixth season of Tip of the Tongue. My colleague, Maddie Hayes, joins me today to ask me questions about my own food story. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Maddie Hayes, Programs and Curatorial Manager at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. She posts all of the podcasts on the Nitty Grits Network and is my social media mentor and my friend. And she's here to help me kick off the sixth season of Tip of the Tongue. Welcome, Maddie. I'm so excited to be here. And I can't wait to ask some questions so people get to know you better. Because I feel like you're always asking people the questions and doing the deep dives. But today feels like a good day for people to get to know you better. Well, okay. Let's just dive in. (laughs) Let's dive in. So... My first question, and I, I got this from one of, um, another one of my favorite podcasts, but what did you study in school and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Well, when I was really young, I thought that I was going to be an astronaut and a doctor and I would go up in space and deal with all the problems that one has when one's in a spaceship and I would be, you know, a doctor. I was always good in science, but when I went to college and I started to take all the pre-med courses, I realized that I was not the same as the other people in the class because the other people in the class were very focused. They wanted to be a doctor. They wanted to heal people. They had all of this this desire. It was very single-minded. And like in a comparative anatomy class, I would get more involved in the fact that you had opposable thumbs and how did that develop? And the teacher would always get so frustrated with me and say, (laughs) doesn't matter. You just have to learn the anatomy. Why we have it doesn't matter. And I realized that I was just in the wrong place. I didn't have that kind of drive to do whatever it took to be this thing. I was stop along the way and ask these questions and that wasn't the right kind of person (laughs) and so I I kind of changed what I was going to do then I dropped out I became a hippie in um, San Francisco and I lived in the Haight-Ashbury and then when I came back to school to finish college after getting zeros, you know, (laughs) dropped out in the middle. I came back and I got a degree in English 
because all you had to do was read all the time. <laughs> and now I was always interested in food and I wanted to study food and I actually looked into it before I decided to go into English. And that only meant that I could get a degree in home economics, which I wasn't interested in. And anthropology was more, you know, learn about spearheads and and arrow points and all of that kind of stuff and pottery shards. And that's not really what I wanted to do. So I got a degree in English. And then when I didn't know what I wanted to do after that, I went to law school. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's always when people get, if you're in history, English, political science, and you don't know what to do, law school is next. And this is Kelly Pro person that majored in history. I know that feeling, but honestly, I can, you were a lawyer and I can see you as a lawyer and it makes sense because you're such a curious person and you like to do those deep dives like you were talking about where in medical school they were like no 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 no. we have opposable thumbs do not ask any more questions being a lawyer you have to ask the tough questions right right yeah and and there's a logic to it it's very rational but at the same time it's not and you can sometimes you know in a in a trial get all emotional and all that sort of thing (laughs) to things that totally irrational. So I loved that mix of rationality and emotionalism at the same time. Mm. Well, jumping back into what you said about loving food and wanting to go in that direction, how old were you when you developed a love for food and cooking? And what are some of your first food memories? Well, I think it happened long before I can remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I I used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother cooking. Now, my grandmother was a fabulous cook. My mother was a good cook. She was really good. But my grandmother was just so intuitive. And she was just, this was just what she was born to do. Wow. And so cooking with her and she, for her, it was all about the process. And yes, she wanted a good result. Whereas my mother was all about the result. So that was, you know, that was kind of the difference. So my mother didn't want you bothering her while she was cooking because you weren't going to be as a child, as good as what she wanted. So it was always problematic. Whereas my grandmother it was the process. So she could give you dough to play with. And if it fell on the floor, you just picked it up and kept playing with it, you know? Uh, Whereas my mother would fuss that you had wasted ingredients and she had to throw it away and all that kind of stuff. Um, And so what that did was really instill in me a a really um, love for just the process of cooking as well as, of course, eating. And she would talk about why she did this and what kind of ingredients you could use. And also there was a lot of, let's just open the refrigerator and see what's there. And so I I don't really remember when it started. It was just like, it's always been there. Oh, that's so sweet. Are there anything, is there anything that you absolutely loved that your grandmother made that you kind of still think about? Hmm. Well, my grandmother made, 
my grandmother made the very best biscotti and mm. these were not the the double cooked kind these were just cookies that um were anise flavored and that were covered with sesame seeds and she made them hard so that you could dip them into marsala wine and she and i after we had baked and baked and baked and she made them with lard i mean it was just totally the stuff that you don't do anymore but when it was done even when i was five years old I got my little glass of Marsala and oh. I was allowed to dip my, my biscotto into the wine and eat it. And then I would take a nap. <laughs> and then I would take a nap. <laughs> oh my God. Especially as a kid, you must've just been over the moon. That is so sweet. I love that. So I feel like since you've been eating and cooking since such, for such a long time that's what recently has you excited what is something that you've eaten recently that was so delicious mm. and then on the other hand what is something that you've eaten recently that was bad and you could have made it you could have anybody could have made it <laughs> <laughs> so I have eaten some bad hamburgers Ooh. and not, I mean, they're not bad, like they're spoiled bad, but they're dry and tasteless and not very interesting. And that has been really disappointing in restaurants and places where you would expect them to be much better than they are. And that's really kind of, kind of disappointing. The best things have just been, you know, my favorite things, which are vegetables. And I, I've, rediscovered fried eggplant sticks. I'm just in love with those. And I'm also enjoying really experimenting with spices from other places. And I happen to be right now in love with dried mango powder. And I just, well, if you put a combination of um, cumin and dried mango powder in your homemade hummus, that is so fabulous. It just gives that hummus a little bit of a fresh spark. I mean, I know you can put lemon juice, but this just gives you just a little bit more of a spark. So I've been using preserved lemons to give it the lemony part of the flavor and then the dried mango powder to give it the freshness. I just, I've I've been in love with that. I want to put that on the dried mango powder and the cumin and maybe something a little spicy on popcorn. I feel like that would be delicious. Mm, That would be delicious. Yes. Yes. I, I love that you experiment so much. You were one of the first people that gave me dried orange rind and I used it in all sorts of stuff, sweet and savory. And when it's dried, it just gives it such an interesting flavor that people can't can almost place but not really I don't know that's I always love to surprise people when I cook so I love the dried things so kind of shifting gears a little bit Uh you spend so much of your days 
consuming food media, whether it's reading food books, watching food TV, listening to food podcasts, um, what have been some of your favorites this year? Like standout moments where you either learned something or just something that has really stuck with you? Hmm. Let's see. What have I really, really enjoyed a lot? You can even talk about even your master gardener class. Oh, gosh, that has been great fun. I enjoyed the master gardener class. I loved the people in the class with me, which was really important because we could all talk about the teacher and how stupid class was and everything, just like regular students. (laughs) And everybody was like at least over 45, maybe 50. And none of us had been in class for a very long time. And we just reverted right back to being a student. And I thought, oh my God, this must be genetic. So that part was really fun. And um, I also learned, not only did I just literally learn new things, which was great, but I also learned that it gave me the same feeling that school often gives me where there's like, this is the way. And I don't tend to respond well to that. (laughs) And so I just had that desire to challenge all the time, which I tried not to do because I realized that this is not a good practice, but there was like, you know, this is the way lawns should be. And this is the way ponds should be. And this is the way you should do it. And, um, and you, if you watched, even watch television where they take you to gardens all over the world, they do it differently. And so Mm -hmm. if they can do it differently and they have successful gardens, why is it that this is the way? And so I found that really difficult. When I was in high school, I had this chemistry teacher and I'm sure she's gone now. And I used to study chemistry so hard so that I could ask her a challenging question every day because I disliked her so much. (laughs) And I learned more chemistry because I didn't like her because it was important to me to be able to challenge her. (laughs) That's really how perverse I am. Oh my God. That's so, that's so funny. So you went into the garden class and you were like, okay, I'm going to challenge some of this stuff because you've been gardening for a long time now. And I'd say even before going through the master gardener program, you're a master gardener. You know, you know your way around the garden. Did did, you? I did learn new things. I really did. Mm -hmm. And there were people, for example, I thought that the lawn section was just more boring than possible and could hardly believe that they would actually spend all this time talking about lawn care. But there were people in the class who's who found that their favorite, favorite section. So I realized that I just have my own feelings about what I think is important and lawns aren't important to me, but they are to some people. Now I could see if you worked for a golf club or Mm -hmm. if you were trying to keep a field like a soccer field or something like that working that you would want to know more about lawns, but just to have your own pretty lawn 
I, I've always thought that lawns are a waste of space because all it is is grass and yeah. front lawns. I, I think it's from growing up in New Orleans, but to me, front lawns are stupid because what are they for? Nobody sits on their front and uses their front lawn. They use their backyard because it's more private and you can play around or whatever, but People don't usually do that kind of stuff on their front yards. That's wow. just for the look. And I think that that business of just having your house start on the sidewalk, that, that's a better use of space, you know, where all the space is in the back. That's so New Orleans. You can tell that you grew up in New Orleans. Yes. <laughs> almost every house, unless you live on St. Charles and you have the pomp and circumstance of the lawn and all that kind of stuff. I mean, my house goes nearly right up to, to the sidewalk. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I know one of your next projects is the SoFab Garden. Right. What are you the most excited about? What's coming? What's coming next in the garden? I know you have a big full plan. Well, right now I've been spending a lot of time, not only with the plan itself, but just trying to source the plants, but I'm the most excited about the sassafras trees. Ooh. I really believe that people don't know about sassafras and I really think that we're losing our use of filet and I I hate that so I really want to push sassafras trees so people know what the source of filet is and then actually push the recipes that use filet because there there used to be a time when filet was really an important thing for people to use and it's really not the way it used to be so and and learning all about the the native people who used it and all their recipes using it we just we don't think about that enough as far as i'm concerned absolutely so for the people that might not know what filet is because if you haven't traveled to new orleans or you're not from new orleans you might not know what it even is you might get to this section and you might hear sassafras and filet and feel like we're making up words. Would you <laughs> describe what it is? And if you come here, what you can find it in? Well, sassafras is a tree that is native to North America. And its roots were once used for tea. And if you smell the roots, you will also think about root beer. Because it was once a flavoring in root beer. I didn't know so, that. And it was always thought to be medicinal by explorers and by native people. So the, the tree itself has leaves that are very unusual. They, they don't all look the same. There are several kinds of leaves on the tree. And when the leaves dry, you can crush them or grind them or pound them. And that makes filet. And it is an herb in the sense that it offers flavor to whatever you're cooking, but it is also a thickener. And so it was used by the native people, especially in stews and such, to not only add a flavor, but also to thicken their stews. And I'm always... We use it, we use it in gumbo. 
We use it in gumbo. We also sell it at the museum. Well, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am always impressed with your encyclopedic knowledge. I, it does not surprise me that you started a food museum from the ground up. I want to know more about, you've had so many past lives in your career. What do you think when building the museum, what skills did you learn in your past jobs and throughout your life that kind of facilitated building the museum? You felt like, oh man, I feel confident in doing this because I knew blank. Hmm. Well, I think that actually the most important quality is being stubborn. Um, (laughs) And that means that every time something doesn't go right, you're just going to do it anyway. You know, that you're not really angry, but you're just like, I'm not going to lose this. You're not going to win. You universe are not going to win here. I'm going to (laughs) win. So you just have to be stubborn enough and persistent enough to just keep going. So that to me is the most important quality. But in terms of actual knowledge, I think having gone to law school has been actually quite useful in having practiced law. And um, when I have had different jobs, I've had to be able to learn how to read spreadsheets. And so I think that has been quite useful. And I love to read and have that English degree has been quite useful because I learned how to read, not just being able to read the words on the page, but understand what things mean and and ask questions and go further. When you practice law, you have to learn to be an instant expert about the field that whatever law, whatever case or controversy there is, fits in. So if it's about oil fields, you have to learn about oil fields. If it's about guns, you have to learn about guns. If it's about chemistry, you have to learn about at least the chemistry of the thing that you're talking about. And so you may have, if there's a trial, you may have to cross-examine a real expert. You have to be expert enough to do that, even though you don't know anything outside of this little line that you draw around the question that's in the case, you have to be able to do that. And so what happens is you build a confidence in your ability to research and learn and analyze, which I think always is useful. And you learn that Um, anybody can actually do it and that you can do it too, you know? And, and so I think that that has been very helpful. We recently did the Filipino Louisiana exhibit. So we had to become experts enough to put on an exhibit. And do we know everything? No, but we know enough to put on an exhibit. And then you have to be able to talk to people ask them for their support, for their help, all of those things. And I just think that experience and that stubbornness makes it possible to do that. You worked for the UNO Foundation and they helped to build the Ogden and the D-Day Museum, which is now the National World War II Museum, 
Would you say that also gave you some confidence to build a museum from the ground up? Yeah, it was definitely on-the-job training for building up a museum. And then you learn all the different components of that. You learn about what a museum is. In the beginning, when we first started, we were even asking questions like, do you have to have an actual building to be a museum? Mm. Can you be a museum if you just, we used to call it, have exhibits in borrowed spaces, which of course now people call pop-ups, but at the (laughs) time it didn't have a name. And so we called it have exhibits in borrowed spaces. And we thought that, yes, you could. And then you ask questions like, do you have to have a collection? Does that make you a museum as opposed to just an exhibit space? And what, you know, where do you, when do you become an actual museum as opposed to just an exhibit space? And when we were talking about doing this museum, I went, for example, to California and visited the folks at Copia, which no longer exists. It exists in another form now, but they were not interested in having a collection. They wanted to be a place where you could celebrate food. So you could have plays and movies about food showing there. So they had a little theater and they had restaurants, several different kinds of restaurants, a fine restaurant and then more like um, cafe. Um, And they wanted to have a store where you could buy all kinds of things, everything from blenders and cooking equipment to books and other things about food. They wanted to be able to have concerts and music about food. And they wanted to have exhibits, but the one they wanted exhibits that were not based on their own collection. There was, you know, there was just going to be an exhibit that might be there for six months or whatever, and then they would change it. So that they had a really interesting approach to what they had. They had one exhibit that was like a permanent exhibit but then after that they were they were interested in having a changing exhibit it was and then i talked to people at the smithsonian who were involved with food at the smithsonian and got to know some of those people and asked them of course the smithsonian has a totally different approach because they do have a collection But then they also warned me to be very careful about collecting because you can have what they have, which is there's, you know, they're keeping the patrimony of the United States, you know, of America. Um, And so they keep some things just for historical reasons that maybe would almost never be exhibited. So how early on did you make the decision that you wanted not only a physical space, but you also wanted a collection. I think that I actually made that decision in conversation with Paul Friedman of Yale. So he talked about how important it was when you study something historically to be able to put your hands on objects from that time or give you a sense of what it was like in a way that just reading about it in somebody's journal or somebody else's historical work or from a newspaper or whatever. He talked about just that extra thing 
that you get from the out the object the material culture itself and not just the abstract and so that's when i said okay that's what we should do not necessarily because we should do it but because no one is doing it it became very clear to me that in decorative arts museums you could find beautiful bone china plates that were hand painted and things you could find beautiful silverware or gorgeous gorgeous pottery that was used in dining halls or dining rooms of the very 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 most elite and wealthy people but there was nobody who was collecting the ordinary stuff of the everyday people that was gone and it was just like mostly it was wooden plates or tin plates and these things were just discarded and they weren't considered something that you would you would actually keep and so we only learn oh look at these beautiful things that people used well everyday people didn't use those things they never have seen those things and and so I thought, this is not giving us a good sense of what life was like. And so I thought that we should, we should be the ones to do it because nobody else was. I think, and honestly, I believe that that's one of the things we do the best is not only do we have a hands-on experience at the museum where if you've seen something on TV or you've listened to something on a podcast or you've even read something in a book, chances are we'll have it and people can put their hands on it and really experience it in a way that you really don't get an opportunity to do otherwise. I've worked in a lot of museums and it is extremely hands-off. And so it's wonderful that we're a very hands-on museum and I love to see people's faces light up when they get to, you know, not saying that we don't, we keep the everyday things, but then it's also, we also mix in some of the nicer things. I mean, I'm thinking of our old New Orleans restaurant collections Mm -hmm. with the plates and the bottles and the this and the that. The hand embroidered napkins and all of that. Yes. Yes. The luxury. But then we also have the very, like the everyday plastic plates and old chip bags or old coca-cola bottles because honestly that's what people usually remember the most that's where people have the most nostalgia I'm just I could go on and on about this all day but (laughs) because I love what we do but (laughs) but I do think we do a really good job of um giving people a hands-on experience with food history because we all eat three times a day that's right that's There's right. so much nostalgia and so much, so much built around food for us. And I think I'm glad, I, I'm so glad we have a space where we're able to like talk about the things that we're able to talk about. So going back to one of the things you said, I want to talk about failures because sometimes people see we are in a building that's massive and our collection is pouring out and we just opened a research center with 40,000 books and thousands of other things. And people look at that and they're like, oh, wow, that just came together. 
that just <laughs> happened one day. Like, right. <laughs> no, like we're 15 years old. So I want to talk about if there are any defining moments of obstacles, maybe some failures that you can look back on now and, and laugh. Some just defining moments in building the space um, that aren't the, the most beautiful or luxurious that people are like, Oh, that just happened. It was effortless. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So first of all, I will say that, and I know, you know, this Maddie, but the work is very physical. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> and uh, there have been many a time that I've had my phone on speaker on top of a ladder. I've been carrying, uh, you know, hand to my electric tools up on top of the ladder and putting things on the wall and doing all of that. Certainly carried enough boxes of books, tons <laughs> and tons of those. So I-, I would say in the very beginning, what I often I used to say this often, I wish we were the Louvre and not that I wanted to be an art museum, but I knew that somewhere in the back of the Louvre, there were things piled up, you know, display cases or just things that they used once or twice and that they needed to, um, they didn't get rid of. And Every time we needed something, we had to go find it and get it. We we didn't have that stockpile of stuff. So that's what I meant when I said, I wish we'd been around that long, you know. And so in the beginning, we did a lot of improvising because we didn't have the money or the the resources. When you have to get everything new, you have nothing to call upon. We had a lot of what I would call less than primo exhibits in the very beginning. And also in the beginning, we had a lot of flatness about our exhibits where the the actual words on placards became more important or pictures that we reproduced were really the dominant feature as opposed to artifacts. Mm-hmm. And, and so... I look at those exhibits in my mind, obviously, and think we didn't know enough about how to tell a story with artifacts. And number two, we didn't have enough artifacts or access to the artifacts. So it wasn't only our fault. Some of it was, you know, we just don't have it and can't find it. And we haven't made the connections yet to even know who has it. And so some of the early time, I think people were incredibly generous just because they loved the idea of what we were doing. So I would definitely say that. Um, It was really difficult when we moved to the new building because we had hoped to have at least six weeks to get things out of storage, put together our exhibits and be ready for opening. But what happened was that the contractor wasn't finished and wasn't finished and wasn't finished. And so we didn't have six weeks to do it. We had like 10 days to do it. Oh and my God. Very big wow. space. And our, our things that were in storage were stored um, by storing things together that fit more 
efficiently in a box than they were stored by exhibit. So we would have to often open up six or seven boxes to find all the components of something, maybe 12 boxes or whatever. And so when we had our grand opening and we couldn't change it because we had people coming in, even from other countries, to do things as part of what we were doing for the grand opening, it was so sparse because we simply did not have the time to do what we needed to do. Now, we had a lot of people there. So I, I would estimate we had at least 500 people who came to the oh, open. Wow. And so I don't know that it would have worked as well with that many people there had we actually been as full as we are now. But I, I, I worried that we would be criticized and people would be disappointed because it wasn't as full. And we have had people who've come back you know, years later and said, oh, there's so much more here. I was here for the opening. And it's like, yes, well, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> we did stuff every day. And, 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 you know, you just, you just have to make do with, with what there is. So the, I, they're not exactly failures, but they were disappointments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the interesting thing when people come into the museum is sometimes they get really fired up about things not being in the museum. And then I explain to them, I mean, and we have thousands and thousands and thousands of artifacts for anybody who hasn't been to the museum all of them have been donations. Right. We have not purchased really anything. And so I always tell people, if you want to see it, send it in. And sometimes people do. That's right. They do. <laughs> yeah, if we're like, you can be, you know, one of our traveling curators, bring us some stuff. That's so incredibly full circle. Last Saturday, we had the opening of our Juke Joint exhibit. And in contrast, there was very little writing about the exhibit and we let the artifacts kind of tell the story for themselves. And when we were almost done, I remember you walking into the exhibit and looking around and saying, wait, these are all things that we already had. And yeah. it was true. We, because of your foresight, we had enough stuff that fit a particular theme for us to decorate the whole thing without having to buy anything or go anywhere or get anything on loan, which is really nice because that kind of process can be a little bit of a pain in the butt. Um, but that must have been wild for for you, a very full circle moment. Well, and and I have lots of memories of people saying, we should get rid of this. We don't need this many beer cans. We don't need um, this. We don't need that. And all of that is true. We don't need it in the sense that you can't operate without it. But if part of what you do is to preserve these things, then you do need them. It's a, it's a different kind of need. It, it's like this is representative of a time have a place and so we we need it so we we've tried to we've tried I have been called a hoarder 
I've been called a hoarder many a time. <laughs> I don't consider myself a hoarder. Um, no. <laughs> but um, we do have a lot, a lot of things that are what are really trash, what other people would call trash, because those are the hardest things to find in the future. And so you have to collect them when you can, because they are not valued things and they are thrown away and discarded when their their use is done the beer can even even if you recycle it which people do maybe more now than they used to you're still discarding it mm-hmm. and so somebody has to preserve those things for the future oh my gosh absolutely because in this particular exhibit the beer can is the is one oh, yeah, of the, that's it yeah the beer can, the beer can. Um, no so over at our research center we have I have three or four like massive boxes full of vintage beer cans and yes you would look at that and think that is trash uh-huh. but within the context of our juke joint exhibit where we have them all stacked up and that is what people in the south would have been drinking at the time that is an artifact. And because Liz said, we will take four ginormous boxes of vintage beer cans. We made like an art piece out of all the beer cans with them. So it really, that really is wild. So if anybody hears this and wants to donate food artifacts, you know who to call. (laughs) So I have one last question. Okay. Mm -hmm. My one last question is, you, you have built a museum, you have a podcast, you are an author and you are continuing to write among many other things. What's next? What do you have on your, your bucket dream list, big, small that you're excited about? What is it? What are they? So I would really like to write a book for children and maybe it's two books because you might have to divide it into some younger children and older kids like teenagers or whatever. I would like to write a book about why food culture is important, but not for adults, but for, for, for kids. So that's what's something that I've been thinking about recently that might be one of those things to write about. I think that'd be very cool because I think constantly with children, we're pushing nutrition and nobody's pushing food culture and what makes our heritage special, special because of the food that we eat and the food traditions that we pass on and being able to write that in a a palatable way for children. I think that would be really cool. And I, I really believe that everything that we try to do like um if you say oh i want to lose weight or i want to do this or i want to do that as it relates to food it's so much easier if whoever it is who's saying oh you know this is an obese culture or or whatever or an an obese society if we could be respectful of the culture the eating culture of the people then it would be much easier to think about how to help 
solve whatever health problem there might be that's related to food. And I don't think people do that. It's like they expect you to upend your culture to be on this diet or to do this or that instead of finding dishes that can be tweaked that are still your your heritage. Mm-hmm. And I I've, I think that culture and food culture is something that has not been respected as something that people should learn. And so scientists or nutritionists or dietitians or whatever get so stuck on the science that they don't understand that you can't change people. And we've had example after example after example of how it doesn't work. And yet <laughs> they keep doing the same thing over and over. And I think it would be interesting to, you know, to be exploring that. Yeah. It's like the soda culture and people like, just don't drink sodas. They're so bad for you. And it's like, yeah, sure. That's absolutely true. But I don't think people think about the culture that soda kind of came to blossom from and think about how people that were working manual labor jobs and needed high caloric things. Soda was a really easy way for people to get high calories and get energy. And I think people don't think about that history and are so easy to erase things because they're bad or they're not what I would, not what I would drink. And so, and if you, you, yeah, go on, I'm sorry. Oh no. Being able to inform people about that is really important as well. And also if you, if you take this away and you say, oh, well, iced tea, sweet tea certainly has as many calories as soda and so does lemonade. And so why is it that you're only, you're only ragging on soda when there are all these other things? I mean, this, this kind of trying to I'm sorry. This demonization of things. Yes. Yes. It's usually rooted in like, can be rooted in races. It can be rooted in a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they're looking also for a silver bullet, like if we get rid of this, all of our problems will be solved. And that just isn't the way it works, you know? No, not um, at all. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Patty. <laughs> this has been a whole lot of fun. And um, thanks for helping to uh, kickstart our sixth season. This is great. And I hope people are happy with it. <laughs> oh, me too. I'm so excited I could be here. And even though we've worked together, every day for almost three years. I feel like I learned a few new things. So that's exciting. And maybe people write in with more questions and more Ask Liz's. So I hope that happens too. Great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.